Get the hands up. Oh, I think I'm going to faint. You do, you'll fall on your ear. The pretty lady. Come here. Who? Me? Uh, no, the other pretty lady. Oh, for a pity. Everybody get back in the court. Oh, if I get me. You have nothing to fear. Very beautiful on my girl. I take him. Ah, but first I give you gold for him. Give him up. Didn't rob any of us. Ah, lady. I never robbed the individual. I am so sorry. I cannot travel with you in this very dangerous country. But I wish you a very safe and pleasant journey. Adios. Goodbye, Bandit. Get out of your way. Quick. You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast about film often contains foul language, discussions of an adult nature, and spoilers for the films discussed are to be expected. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! It is They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 199. So, yeah, we're one away from 200. And uh, I'm your host, Lee. So smart he'd dry snow and sell it as sugar, Russell. And uh, joined by my co-host, Daniel. That's why they have rubbers on lead pencils, Harper. How you doing, sir? I'm doing... What? 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 Oh, sorry, my browser did something. Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I said my browser just decided to upgrade something for another oh. reason. When I was, um, it just flashed up just as you asked me to talk, and suddenly I was, I thought I had left the stream because um, technology is garbage, and uh, we rely <laughs> on it for our lives. Mm-hmm. We're all stuck inside, um, except you and I are not because we are quote unquote essential workers, mm-hmm. which means we are easily exploitable. But we're still making podcasts, at least sometimes. So it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Yeah, at least I'm being exploited in a socialist utopia, so I'm, I'm making <laughs> yes. a little bit extra money. The socialist <laughs> utopia of Nova Scotia. Yeah. <laughs> so you know. Uh, yes. Do you still have toilet paper there? Do you have to stand in line for toilet paper? Pff, no. <laughs> there's plenty of toilet paper. There's no. There's no supply. There's no shortage of toilet paper and. 
really anywhere. Like there, maybe there's a couple brands that aren't showing up right now. Right. But that's just more uh, like what warehouse levels were before this shit hit. Right. Kind of thing. So that's about yeah, it. I saw a thing from like, uh, you know, people like interviewed, interviewed like a supplier from Georgia Pacific who was talking about like how um, essentially the issue is that people are now sitting at home. Mm-hmm. So they're using toilet paper at their regular rate, but they're using like the fancy toilet paper that you buy <laughs> yeah. to get at home. And so like the big industrial rolls that you use at work. Mm-hmm. And like that does make a difference. That does, you know, it is like one of those things. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? There are still toilet paper in the markets, although it's mostly just like, you know, a handful of brands and whatever. But yeah, if we could just if if we end if we get the end of this and just kind of go, yeah, it's just all store brands because like nobody really cares otherwise. I'm mm-hmm. I'm really okay with that. Like, yeah, let's just I... destroy the idea that it matters. Like, what brand of tomato can tomatoes you buy? Like, yeah, no, there's one brand. It's fine. Yeah, get down to that uh, point in Repo Man where yeah. everything is just generic labels. <laughs> beer <laughs> it's funny how like you know like in that uh in that movie it is kind of like oh this is like a sign of like some version of dystopia but the idea that there are five brands of tomatoes and they all compete with one another to produce uh, effectively identical products and suddenly there's like marketing managers who are expected to like try to compete like that's even worse ultimately. yeah <laughs> yeah like, i mean you know they all, they all all the different brands they generally all taste the same yeah. You can take them home, and with just a little bit of know-how, you can tweak them to the to what you want. Mm-hmm. And you know, you don't you don't have to rely on brand loyalty. That's just yeah. bullshit. So, yeah, I buy I buy strong brand everything except for like a couple of products in which I do like prefer, you know. But anyway, um, we are far afield from our goal here, right? We yeah, have to get to. Instead, I'm talking We're- about canned tomatoes. So we're not know. we're not trying to solve the world's problems tonight. We're just going to be looking at two movies, uh, and we're we're in the talkies now. We're in the, uh, we're, in the we're into the sound era, yeah. Um, which is uh, I I kind of like ha- I put these on the list. And I'm like, oh no, we'll do these, and I was kind of like, oh no, these are both still silence, even though they're after 1927, but they're not. And so it was kind of a it was a surprise, kind of a pleasant, kind of a kind of a weird surprise. It was mm-hmm. like oh. If I had planned this a little bit better, we would have done these after the big episode 200. But, you know, uh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at In Old Arizona from 28 and The Virginian from 1929. But before we get into that, we do have some housekeeping to get through. So um, let's just go right to the YouTube comments because uh, here they are. Because why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Someone uh, on our the rundown episode, which seems to get a lot of YouTube comments lately, so this must be maybe some place in like East Asia finally got YouTube, and <laughs> they're all looking for this movie or some shit. But uh, on our the rundown episode, someone called Canyon Ejo uh, wrote Kontol, and I looked this up, and I think it was Indonesian for dick. <laughs> so he's basically calling us a dick. You know, yeah, for not giving them the movie, I guess. Yeah, well, or, you know, just he maybe maybe they listened to the episode and just thought we were dicks about it, which you know yeah, like, could could be completely true. Completely reasonable perspective, honestly. I don't yeah. have a problem with that. Uh, someone called Daniel Negron uh, on our the Laura Lee's Grasp episode said, "Bitch talking." Yeah. Again, very kind it's of nebulous. It's very difficult to to really respond to that intelligently. 
I, I did respond to it. I said, yes, indeed, there was a bitch talking. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, well, his name was Daniel Negron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on our bad not day. Not all Black... Daniels. Not all Daniels. That's the... No, not all Daniels. Yeah. Not all Daniels. Hashtag not all Daniels. Um... <laughs> on our bad day at Blackrock episode, someone called Albertus said, waste of time. And that, I asked that movie is not a waste of time. No, I assure you, no, it's not. I, and I have, and there is no other um, explanation for that uh, response than than <laughs> referring to the movie as a waste of time. I asked for clarification, but he gave me none. Yeah, so. well, I I choose to believe that uh, this person is not a fan of the film. Just, considers the Spencer Tracy classic. Yeah. A bad day at Black Rock, a waste of time, and therefore has no uh, intelligent opinions about cinema that are worth uh, discussing. And really, no opinions about anything worth discussing. No, I mean he just he, he couldn't buy Spencer Tracy with one arm beating the shit out of a gang of toughs. So I, I guess he <laughs> clearly, just, clearly, yeah. The suspension of disbelief was just shattered. Albertus, yeah. I'm just yeah. I'm disappointed in you. Yeah. Uh, we have a slightly positive one. Well, that's mostly positive. Um, <laughs> I love how we grade on a curve with our comments. <laughs> no, this one this one is mostly positive. Uh, on our Sorcerer episode, someone called Brett Owens says, thanks for covering this film and your insights, but please, it's not Schreider. And I probably mispronounced because, you know, I, I fucking do that all the time when I get drinking, so... Uh, yeah. Fair. Roy Scheider. Yes, Thank I know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your comments. And uh, we've got two comments on their Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. You should, you know, join that and find out what's coming up on the podcast if you haven't done so already. And you'll get insightful comments like this from uh, one of our new favorite posters, David Wilt, who says, This year marks the 20th anniversary of the cheerleading comedy Bring It On, which, yeah. Yeah. I... <laughs> Have you seen uh, Bring It On? I didn't because I knew there was going to be no tits in it. So it's like I I don't want to watch it's, a cheerleading it's, movie. It's, it's actually pretty cute. It's it's is it, it's better it's better than you think it is. We'll just leave it at that. See, I I either want to watch when it comes to like a cheerleading movie, it's either got to be the cheerleaders, yep, which is just straight on like weird art house porn movie, or. It's got to be uh, like, but I'm a cheerleader, like that that indie yeah. film from like yeah. the was in the '90s or 2000s. Uh, '90s, the uh, Natasha uh, Natasha Leone. Yeah, uh, like it turns out I'm a lesbian movie. Um, yeah, yeah, which uh, is we should cover that at some point. Maybe I would cover that with you. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. Bring it on. There's some interesting stuff in it. There's some fun stuff in it. It's not quite your trip level. But it's it's got it's got some fun stuff. Like there's oh. some interesting material in it, and like it's better than you think it is based on the premise. I just saw that there's like eight thousand sequels to it, and I was like, oh, this can't be good. I haven't watched any of the sequels because I've chosen to just kind of limit my exposure to that content to the original movie. And kind of like I got to the end of the movie, and I'm like that was fine. That's my response to bring it on. That was fine. I'm actually really happy that it exists. That's fine. 
and I don't need the sequels because I'm assuming they will make me hate the entire property. So that's kind of where I land on it. <laughs> uh, okay. And here, and I'm sure this is probably in response to the fact that we have failed this man and we are now doing talkies. Uh, James <laughs> Slater Murphy said, I accept Lee's invitation to fight him anytime, any place. And here, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. James posted this on April 1st. I assumed it's an April Fool's joke because he knows I would just take him out. I clearly, mean, that's, clearly. That's, that's what it is. So, you know, um, you dodged the bullet there, James. Congratulations. And uh, get on this podcast soon. You yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Hey, we're getting into the 30s. We're going to be doing Universal stuff here, you mm-hmm. know, in a few weeks. So, uh, yeah, Universal Horror, he wanted on. So uh, we're going to do that. James Murphy's never invited on any podcast I ever host anymore because he uh, is a wuss who could not <laughs> defeat you in combat. <laughs> I've taken his man. That's my. That's my. That's my opinion. That's my learned opinion on this. <laughs> no, it's fine. right on. It's fine. Yeah, James Murphy is welcome back at any time. Of course. Yes. Yes. Open door invitation for James. One James Murphy. And I'll just point out, and this is why you should join the uh, Facebook group because uh, guys like Robert Ward drop interesting links into the wall every once in a while. He's been doing a bunch of that for our sort of uh, silent movie series. And he dropped two links here. And so if you go to the Facebook group, you'll see them. Uh, The first one is a link to a documentary, I guess, uh, a queer romance, gay characters and male bonding in early film, silent film and pre-code, which uh, Mm. sort of connects back to some of the stuff we were talking about in Wings, basically. You know, how we were sort of uh, theorizing, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of gay subtext in this (laughs) film. (laughs) So, so, uh, and I haven't watched that yet. It's it's only an hour. I'll probably get into that pretty soon, but you can check that out there. And the other thing he dropped was a news story on IndieWire saying dozens of 100-year-old photos from the making of Dr. Caligari go up for auction. And uh, apparently they're just single photos, I guess, are selling upwards for $13,000. And uh, they do give a couple of the photos here. They're in sepia tone, and uh, they're interesting. Uh, they, they definitely look a little different from, the, you know, the finished version of the film. And uh, it's cool. Yeah. Just just cool that the, those photos actually exist. Um, I'm actually kind of amazed, kind of amazing to read that. The documentation from, like, that era still exists, especially for, you know, like... I guess Caligari is a, you know, sort of was well renowned early enough to sort of like be something like, oh yeah, people should like archive this, you know, but, uh, yeah, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've ranted about this many times over the course of the last two episodes of, um, you know, so much stuff gets lost because, um, you know, nobody cares past, you know, 15 minutes after the thing gets released in the theaters, uh, for a lot of the stuff we cover. And so, um, it's always nice to get, uh, uh, hint of that. So, yeah, and uh, thanks for those links, uh, Robert. We we really do appreciate you uh, dropping those interesting little tidbits here and there on the uh, Facebook wall. That's cool shit. So, yeah. it's almost like the DVD extras to our podcast or something like exactly, that. Exactly. You know? Exactly. One day, one day, there's going to be a Tim Badass remastered. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that's only going to happen if if somehow I get super fucking rich and then I'll pay someone to remaster everything and make us sound like fucking gold. But, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just imagining like in the future we will be rediscovered by, uh, history as, uh, you know, the greatest film critics of our generation. 
that, despite the fact that we are <laughs> making a, a drunken uh, podcast uh, late at night on, on a Saturday. It's hey, always we... my Saturday evenings. I, I live an exciting life, people. Like, <laughs> hey, we got one up on Siskel and Ebert, as far as I'm concerned, because because we actually like each other, so we're not I mean, like those two dicks. That's fair. that's fair. I mean, at least we can fake it for the microphone. I actually, yeah, are mortal enemies. And, uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> The amount of times I've tried to kill Daniel Harper in the last yeah. five or six years. It's just, yeah. 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 But uh, since you're still alive, Daniel, uh, we can move on to what we watched lately. I am going to reserve what I've watched lately just for uh, brevity's sake, but I know you've watched something, so uh, go ahead. Yeah, I watched a really good movie, 36 Chamber of Shaolin, oh. uh, which I had never seen before um, because I am a loser. Uh, <laughs> It's very good. <laughs> I'm assuming, yeah. you've, I'm assuming you, you yep. know the film fairly well. There was a, uh, uh, the RZA did a um, YouTube video where it was like kind of talking about like the samples that he had used in, mm-hmm. uh, in Wu-Tang albums from uh, Shaw Brothers films. And uh, like kind of talking about what these films meant to him. And I kind of saw that. And then I happened to log on to Amazon Prime because I had some time because we all have time yeah. now. Although you and I did not, but you know, like no. suddenly I was like, I was on Amazon Prime and like 36 Chamber, 36 Chamber of Shaolin showed up and I, it was a movie I'd always wanted to see. And I was like, actually, I will watch this. And uh, it's very, very good. It's mm-hmm. like one of the greatest martial arts movies of all time. Uh, it will be on my best of the year list. Uh, it's nice. phenomenal. I would like to uh, discuss it. I would like to discuss more of these films sometime. One day when we get to the 70s, sometime yeah. in 2022, uh, we will uh, probably start <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I, I feel bad that it took me this long to watch it, but it was really fucking good. It's uh, on Amazon Prime, and uh, it's definitely worth your time if you haven't seen it um, and you're a fan of this show. I think uh, it, one of the things that I really love about it is that it's kind of plotless. Mm-hmm. In the sense that it, I mean, it does have a narrative. It does have sort of a, you know, like guy, uh, you know, kind of, kind of gets, um, he has to go down to the, um, you know, the lower classes and then he kind of joins the monks and then kind of does the thing. And so there is like kind of this kind of political, sociopolitical element to it. But ultimately, the movie's like 90 minutes long and like an hour in the middle is just like training sequences. And these yeah. are some of the greatest martial arts sequences like ever put to film. And so there is a kind of like the, you know, spoiler alert, the 36 chamber of Shaolin is essentially there are 35 chambers for the monks. And then the 36th is like, and now we're going to train the working class. And um, I have feels about that. Good feels <laughs> about that. This is a good thing. This is a good mm-hmm. thing in 2020. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, it was, it, it's, it, but, but it doesn't like shut, you know, it's, it's a perfectly like reasonable thing to just kind of uh, sit and watch and just enjoy on its own uh, kind of like very superficial merits if you just choose to do that. So um, yeah, definitely worth watch if you haven't already. Yeah. Uh, those, those movies uh, like the sort of top tier Shaw Brothers stuff, like you, you get a lot of those like training sequences and you get like mm-hmm. the title sequences. That's like showing all the styles and the weapons that are going to be featured in the movie, you know, basically. And um, you usually, you always see these sort of like cool montages of that stuff, like in the opening credits. I can't rem- actually, it's been a while since I've seen, it. I can't remember if 36 chambers does that or not. I don't think that one does. I don't, oh. I don't remember it. I, it was, it was more just kind of like, it starts off, gets sh- the Shaw scope kind of thing. Okay. Like the, 
you know the the beginning of the movie and like i feel like always with like movies from the 70s i kind of like tune out a little bit in the first 90 seconds in the first like two or three mm-hmm. minutes it's just a thing i don't know maybe it's just kind of engendered to me in this podcast of just kind of like yeah anything in the first like you know like five minutes is just kind of like meaningless setup that we don't need for an audience in 2020 you know um so uh I feel like that's a fault of mine, uh, but also I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. All right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to play a little bit of music and some podcast promos, and we're going to come back with In Old Arizona. You ungodly warlock. New movie reviews all the time. See if these films age just like a fine wine. Oh, no, we'll jack it up again. TV, games, and more within. Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb are all the rage, but we'll lock those critics up in one cage. The Jacked Up Review Show, every Wednesday evening on Spotify, Podbean, Anchor, and other available podcast apps. Hello there. My name is Matt, and I'm a humble court bailiff in a courtroom designed to bring musical justice to all. Each week, we have a podcast with a judge and a jury, and we determine whether a song is guilty, not guilty, or not guilty by reasons of insanity. You know, something like, uh... Or maybe it's a cover of Tom Petty. You can find us wherever you find podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, all that stuff. Just look for songs on trial, please. Okay, I love you. Make good choices. You ungodly warlock.
All right, in old Arizona from 1928, and uh, this is directed by Irving Cummings. Fully admit, because of time restraints, I didn't do as deep a dive on sort of people's backgrounds as I've been doing in these uh, episodes. He did do one of the sequels to this, and we'll get into this, The Cisco Kid. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I looked at. Like, the rest of it, like, he's got a big fucking filmography. He was also an actor and director, uh, but... A lot of the stuff I saw there didn't ring a bell at all. It's like, this is all stuff I've never seen. Yeah, one of the things that I ran into because I did like kind of a cursory look at sort of like what some of these what some of these people kind of did other than this and both of these films, and uh, you know, which is very different for the other film we're going to cover today than this one. Yeah. Um, uh, but there is like a lot of like, you know, this is the transition from silent to talky. And so there are some people who sort of made that transition and some people who didn't. But for the most part, most people who made the transition still really make a lot of stuff like after like 1940 or, you know, 1950 or so. And so there's this entire like thriving industry that exists in this kind of early era that you and I just have like no kind of like cultural knowledge of just because like we haven't immersed ourselves into it until now. And so like, I am very tempted to just like go and like add a bunch of these movies at random to the list and just like start like going through them because I think it's fascinating to kind of look at movies from uh, this era and a little bit later. There is a shit ton of stuff that came out of this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this uh, is, this is a character uh, from O. Henry. Mm-hmm. ultimately and that's something like i just saw the title i'll admit i i put the title on the list i saw it as like kind of like oh like kind of early western something mm-hmm. we should definitely cover i saw it as like oh okay it's based i didn't know it was like based on a henry story <laughs> didn't know like kind of the 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 provenance of it and so sort of like all the like history that kind of goes into it but ultimately you know this was uh you know the the uh, lead actor here won best actor in the second mm-hmm. ever Oscar ceremony. And so this is, um, this, this is kind of a prestige film of the time. And I think that that affects the way that I see it certainly in the sense of, you know, kind of, kind of where, where I land on, you know, kind of its cultural importance, um, in some ways. Yeah. Um, but it also implies a certain thing about like what, um, uh, who the actors are in this and what was kind of expected, uh, from the audience in terms of viewing it. And I think that, um, yeah, and just just kind of thinking in terms of kind of the larger cultural uh, content around its creation, because I think the film itself is fairly slight in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there there's some kind of interesting stuff kind of going on in terms of its construction. Anyway, sorry, I'm kind of getting into commentary <laughs> as opposed to um, you know introduction here. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so uh, we'll just quickly uh, writers. Uh, this, this court's based on the O. Henry story, of the uh, Caballero's Way. The writing credits for basically screenplay and stuff are Tom Barry, Paul Gerald Smith. Uh, this is starring very small cast, basically. Like a lot of the people are basically just it's uncredited. basically three. It's basically mm-hmm. three lead actors, and then like a bunch of also rans. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Edmund Lowe as Sergeant Mickey Dunn. Uh, Warner Baxter is probably the standout here is the Cisco kid and Dorothy Burgess as Tanya Marie also a standout. And we'll get into that, but uh, I do want to mention that. Uh, so basically the Cisco kid character in the original O Henry story is much more murderous, but apart from that, this kind of follows the story pretty much to a T for the most part. Have you read the story? I did not read the story. I've, I, I read it a long time ago. Okay. And, and, and to be completely honest, I totally pretty much forgotten it, and I 
sort of picked this up on in research that yes, indeed, it does pretty much follow the story yeah, to yeah. a T. Okay. Cisco Kid character, he would come back in the film, The Cisco Kid in 31, uh, and Warner Baxter would reprise his role as well as Edmund Lowe would reprise his role too. Uh, then there was the return of the Cisco Kid again with Warner Baxter in 39. Then there was the Cisco Kid and the Lady in 39 with Cesar Romero, and he'd actually take over this series and he would do just uh, a bunch of films with the Cisco Kid character. Baxter was also in a film called The Arizona Kid in 1930, which was the Cisco Kid. It was actually a sequel to this, but uh, they lo- they temporarily lost the rights to the to the characters, so they had to call him the Arizona Kid, um, <laughs> which is great. Doesn't doesn't this feel very um, like 1960s Italian cinema or something? To you? <laughs> kind of. Uh, uh, but yeah, so, you know, basically Cesar Romero primarily took over the series for the most part. Uh, there was also a TV series. And then in 1994, there was a reprisal, a TV movie with Jimmy Smith as the Cisco Kid and Cheech Marin as his sidekick, Poncho. And that was kind of a thing that was introduced, I think, in the movies and in the a TV show, which I believe was in the 1950s or somewhere around there. So, I feel I feel like you and I could do a deep dive and just like view these for like a month and just go like, oh my god, what like brilliance and what garbage we can. Apparently, yeah. apparently the TV series was hella racist. Let's just put it that well, way. We're we're gonna get there. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a synopsis here from Shannon Patrick Sullivan on IMDb, and he says, or she says. Army Sergeant Mickey Dunn sets out in pursuit of the Cisco Kid, a notorious, if kind-hearted and charismatic bandit of the Old West. The kid spends most of his loot on Tanya, the woman he loves, not realizing that she is being unfaithful to him in his absence. Soon, with her oblivious paramour off plying his trade, Tanya falls in with Dunn, drawn by the allure of this substantial reward for the kid's capture dead or alive. Together they concoct a plan to ambush and do away with the Cisco kid once and for all. And yeah, that's pretty much it. It is a love triangle, but it's not yeah, both in these the movies are kind of like have a similar yeah. kind of thing going on, which I didn't kind of expect. I, I really was like, oh, two Westerns, two years apart, you know, in the late twenties. Let's just do them together. Um yeah. but there are, there is a very clear similarity and to another film which we've already covered, which is one of our great episodes, which oh, um, yeah, we're we will, gonna get we will get to. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I love that you and I just work on similar similar lines at this point. Yeah, no. Um Yeah, but uh so what are your sort of general thoughts on this one? God, there's so much. This is a movie that it's weird, like coming out of like all these like silence, and then suddenly we're like, oh, talkies, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the moment has passed. We are now into talkies, and um, you know, to kind of be seeing like something that looks a lot more like a regular movie again, and that it's amazing to what degree like you're basically going to start seeing like up until like the late fifties, this is just kind of what Westerns looked like. Like you could yeah. like this, this is from 1928 and there are some certain stylistic factors that we could kind of like, like point to. And I'm going to do that here in a second, but like ultimately Westerns are just going to look like this for 
40 years basically <laughs> that said uh the performances are very stylized in that kind of silent movie way they're very uh performative they're very um you know kind of kind of mannered in that sense of like you know you kind of get to the the, the cheap seats um you kind of get to like there, there's a it's a mix of this kind of um very kind of stage acty uh, sort of sort of elocution in combination with this highly performative like almost pantomime uh, mm-hmm. kind of kind of performance level um i'd actually really love to get uh, i don't know if elliot chapman is still watching and still listening to this podcast but i'd love to get his thoughts on like what the performances look like here because i it's it was kind of fascinating to me to kind of see at a certain point i literally like turn the sound off just to sort of get the sense of it and the, despite the fact that there's a lot of dialogue in this this would work as a silent film. You could kind of like put little bits of dialogue here and there, a few, a few title cards and just right. kind of like sell it as a silent film. Visually it works as a silent film and it works as a very good silent film. Ultimately, I think like as a talkie, it, it feels like this kind of like weird hybrid where it's both trying to kind of be this kind of more emotionally complex. It's trying to be something that's a little bit more psychologically interesting, but ultimately there's just not a lot of meat there. And so it just sort of like, it feels, it feels very long. It feels like it's like, we're filling 90 minutes with this kind of ultimately bare bones story that we could have mm-hmm. done in 60 minutes, except, you know, we need to fill the time. And suddenly we have the sort of the, the added pressures of like having to like talk into microphones. It's technically top notch in the sense of like, this yeah. was apparently the first outdoor <laughs> sound recording yeah. uh, on a large scale for a film. And uh, honestly, there are no, like from, from the version that I watched, there were no like, issues that i kind of ran into i was expecting to kind of get like you know a little bit of like ooh, where people are kind of in and out of the microphone <laughs> the way that you and i run into because we're fucking amateurs but uh <laughs> you, know, you don't you don't run into that here it, it sounds great it's it's perfect you know that said you know i feel like the the story is is interesting <laughs> well i don't know we could get into the story here in a minute maybe um there is also like the the fact that uh you know uh, two of our three well okay let's There's i don't know, I don't know. let's 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 table that for a second and okay. kind of get your general thoughts before you get to the characters because i have lots of thoughts about the characters like i feel like we could have done this one by itself and like i almost wish we had because i have so many <laughs> on this but um this might be a three-hour episode we'll see um so so i'm I'm gonna just hand it over to you uh general thoughts about the the film i liked uh, like like you like i was sort of in the mindset of silent films now where we've been doing so many even though you know on the side i'm watching yeah like modern films and stuff but still when you know i get into timbadas mode then i'm in it and and like you, I was actually surprised. I didn't realize these were talkies. I thought, oh, Daniel picked two more silent films for us before, you know, for then. That was that was do- that was my fuck up. I'll I'll admit that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was fine. It was a nice little slap in the face. It's like I, I get into it, and I think the opening atmosphere of it is really good. Um, I, I liked the opening scene where you see the the sort of little comedy bit with the characters going in the stagecoach. And you get some nice camera work where it's like, yeah, this is a modern film with some good camera techniques going on. And it's showing a bunch of people doing stuff. 
and it all looks good. You get the mariachi band playing, which diegetically becomes part of the score. And then it quickly, it surprised me because I, I looked on IMDb and it was like action adventure. It's like, no, this is a comedy hangout. This is a comedy movie. Yeah, no, no. It's very, well, like, this stuff in this is comedy. Well, well, like 90% of it is a comedy hangout movie, basically, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a lot of characters just sitting around talking more than anything else. Like there's no, there's literally maybe a minute of action in this film. <laughs> yeah. Ditto, ditto for the secret for the other film we're going to do where, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I think there are like four gunshots that make yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the climactic gun battle. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I liked it, but it, I, I, we will we'll probably get into that as well. But there was a tonal shift in this where I was like, kind of took me out of it a little. I was not ready for this comedy to turn into like a dark, like <laughs> judgment on a character and uh, and and it to, to get to that degree of seriousness. I was like, I was kind of shocked by it. Yeah, no, I I you know. Uh... So let's talk about the characters, our, our three mm-hmm. our three leads. And I'm going to start with uh, who is ultimately the least important and least racist of the three. And that's uh, uh, Emin Lowe as uh, Mickey Dunn. Oh, you mean and, John Wayne before John Wayne? <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly the point I was going to make, which is we've already done Stagecoach. And I really do just want to you know, just tell people, just watch Stagecoach uh, from mm-hmm. 1939 which is uh, 11 years after this. And uh, John Wayne, like it is weird that you see this character and it's clear that like filmmakers are looking for that John Wayne archetype. And the like John Wayne just like waltzes into that in 1939 mm-hmm. and John Ford's stagecoach. And it makes like both their careers ultimately. But it's very clear that he's like trying to do that same thing. But like, you know, John, it's clear that there was a, there was a gap in terms of like what these films needed that John Wayne filled. And that's ultimately Mm -hmm. kind of the, the, the thing that made John Wayne, John Wayne, as much as John Wayne was just like really talented and, you know, for all of the issues that you and I could have with him, he filled a niche, but it wasn't like he showed up and suddenly he transformed the thing. It was like he showed up and fulfilled the thing that was already missing. Yeah. And so you kind of look at like uh, Edmund Lowe. He's not bad at this, but he's not John Wayne. And he's very clearly from modern eyes uh, doing a sub rate John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Um, so Buffoon, buffoonish John Wayne is basically. Yeah, what yeah, he is. yeah. Yeah. No, very, very clearly. The other two characters that we kind of care about in this, um, Warner Baxter is the Cisco kid. Again, the second ever winner of best actor at the Oscars and, uh, Dorothy Burgess as a uh, Tony and Maria who I kind of love. Uh, honestly, these are both like brown face racist caricatures. It is like, we've talked a lot about like, uh, racism in these films that we're kind of covering. And we've talked a lot about like kind of how just the sort of like fundamentally racist uh, ideology uh, like covers all these. It feels weird to suddenly be in uh, the talkie era and to kind of talk about like, Oh, this is the second film. This is the, you know, 1928. 
the first the second year after talkies existed and suddenly being like and they're literally doing like mexican patois you know sort of like this like (laughs) incredibly racist mexican accent and then like this wins the best actor oscar for but and he's literally going like hey senor you know like it's almost speedy gonzalez level well i mean um, it, it's, yeah. it's weird baxter's not even doing that like he's he's he sounds like bella lugosi like yeah sure. <laughs> I, I was listening to this i was like is that supposed to be a mexican accent like right right well, I don't it's, know. it's funny also and and this is something that you kind of get into is the woman who plays the 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 cook who's the older woman who lives with uh, Tony Maria mm-hmm. um, is actually Hispanic is actually yeah. like a Spanish speaker. And she sounds like a native Spanish speaker. And then suddenly you get like Dorothy Burgess kind of coming in and like kind of doing the like, Oh, hello, we get there. You know? And it's like, I don't it's know. Very I, you know, over the it's, top. Yeah. It's very over the top. Um, that said, um, I do kind of admire the everybody just wants to fuck element of this episode. Like yeah. this is the most horny on main uh, movie we've covered in a long time of like literally everybody is like, you know, well, I've got a betrothed. I've got somebody that I'm, uh, you know, one to be with, but also <laughs> like uh, my, my, my private parts want things and we're just going to do that instead. And I kind of appreciated that about the film. <laughs> despite mm-hmm. the fact yeah. That, I mean, like, it's hugely like there's so much going on in this. It's, 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 it's a lot of a lot of innuendo in this. Is, and just there's you know, a moment. There's a moment in this where I thought that like uh, Warner Baxter was like finger fucking Dorothy Burgess on screen. <laughs> like, like, oh, when she was up in the like the loft or whatever. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Like there's a moment where she's like halfway down the ladder and he's like kind of like grasping her in his arms and his hand is like right in that spot or the thigh yeah i'm just kind of like are you literally finger fucking her in front of her like (laughs) elderly roommate who is actually only like 43 or whatever um if you look at the actress but anyway yeah it's like this is fine this is fine the uh the old woman is making you uh, ham and eggs, and your yeah. finger fucking girlfriend, and you sent her out because like you're just charming as fuck doing your. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of a yeah. yeah. I mean, it kind of explains why they sort of ignore the ham and eggs and they start to burn on the on the stove. Yeah, because, well, yeah, very I mean, clearly. Very but they can't like display any of that. You know, it's just like oh, yeah. there's like kisses, and that's the and that's the thing that you kind of run into is like there is this this is pre code right. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there is this, like, five-year period, and we'll get to this as we can talk more about films of this era, where you could kind of do, like, kind of naughty, sexy things. And there's a lot of that kind of going on in this film. And, like, from a modern perspective, it feels very tame. But mm-hmm. at the time, it was very, you know, like, oh, this is, like, pretty pretty aggressively, like, cool stuff. Um, but also, like, it's framed within this, like, you know, and then I'm going to display my love by doing the very, uh, you know, performative silent movie. Like I'm going to grab you by the shoulders and kiss you and yeah. then push you away. And that's like the, you know, the very, like uh, this, the cinematic traditions have changed so much and sort of the tropes and the way that we sort of express these things visually. It's just such a weird viewing experience. ultimately. How about, so okay, just just more on this sort of note of like innuendo and stuff. How about that great scene where uh, Cisco Kid, you know, he, he just robbed the stagecoach, so now he's he's got a bunch of gold, 
He's getting shaved. He's get he's getting pampered and everything, getting a bath and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. then Dunn comes in. Dunn doesn't know who the Cisco kid is. He doesn't. No one knows what Cisco kid looks like. So they become like fast friends in the barber shop. Sure. And they start they start comparing gun sizes. The dude comes down and just taps the dude's gun. Oh, nice gun you got there. And then the other guy goes. Oh, nice gun! You got there pretty big. Like they're basically tapping each other's dicks, right? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a, there's a, there's a very, um, like, yeah, no, there's, there's definitely kind of a homosexual subtext to a little bit of that, you know, which is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, also, uh, one of the things I actually do love about this film is the level, like, the humor. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I actually found it really funny. I and mean, I did too. I laughed quite times. a few yeah. times. Yeah. Not something I was expecting kind of going into this, but like it really does kind of, if you kind of abstract away all the other stuff that's in the movie and just kind of look at like certain sequences as like, oh, this these are just kind of comedy bits. It's very easy to laugh at. It's very easy to kind of accept it as like even kind of a modern you know, it, comedy. It helps uh, make the sort of big stylized uh, silent era performances work better in that context too. So I, I found. Yeah, it works better as comedy than drama, I think. And yeah. I think we do have to get into like uh kind of where this film goes because like one of the things that we haven't really talked about, we've talked about all the you know, you know, the kind of the the general archetypes of the characters, but like this film ultimately gets to so there's a love triangle. Poor Dorothy Burgess is like kind of asked to do the real lion's share of the work here of like mm-hmm. selling both the kind of like love for both of these men, but also, you know, kind of turning on a dime and kind of like, you know, the, like it's like, it's an unbelievable performance, but it's an unbelievable performance because she's asked to do something that's impossible. Ultimately. Yeah. Know, the writing of this is like completely absurd. I don't buy her at any moment, except that like she's horny, <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, which is, which honestly would be a better version of this than like, you know, I actually think you're going to take me to New York and we're going to do the, the, you know, we're going to do the Bowery square or whatever, you know? Sort of yeah. Thing. Dunn wants to take New York and Cisco wants to take her to Portugal. Right. Yeah. Right. You know? Oh, you're gonna kill. You're gonna kill my other boyfriend and make five thousand dollars to give it to me, and therefore I will be with you. And it's yeah. very. There's a part of me that wants to kind of give it, uh, you know, to kind of give it a pass because it's 1929, and maybe there's a kind of cultural expectation that just doesn't play a hundred years later or ninety years mm-hmm. later. Um, but also, like, yeah, this is kind of fucked up, you know. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, regardless. I think she does a perfectly good. I think Burgess does a perfectly good job of like kind of selling, selling it in the moment. Um, it just kind of doesn't make sense uh, again from a modern perspective and kind of thinking of it as a you know kind of a character. Like it's hard for me to kind of put together a narrative who this character is supposed to be. It's... I think that that's ultimately a it's a problem of apparently in the original Henry story, the Cisco kid is like a, a, an explicit villain. Yeah, no, he's evil as shit. Like he and sets he... her up to get killed. Right, and here he's kind of supposed to be kind of a hero, and I don't know. There's so much like about the Mexican border and stuff. That yeah, we could get into if we wanted to kind of get into that. Maybe we'll do it in the next. I don't know. It's it's fine. But I did find it was. I did find a complexity in terms of like her performance and what she's asked to do, and what the script is going to give her versus 
you know, I do wish there was like a little bit more leeway. There was a little bit more, you know, kind of context to this. And ultimately this whole, like, um, one of the things that we kind of get in both of these films is the woman who is the, uh, the love interest of the, the villain and the hero. And, uh, you know, that does play into High Noon, which I think is the, uh, the yeah. movie that you and I both were thinking heavily of in this uh, mm-hmm. episode. Uh, particularly, I think maybe we'll get into that in the next movie. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, yeah. what I run into is, is the fact that we kind of run into this character. We kind of run into this trope. But she's just kind of asked to uh, to perform it. You know, she's not really given any time to justify she just has to perform it and uh yeah i don't know that's difficult yeah no she's she's given a thankless role really because there's no real there's there's nothing really around her to justify her being the way she's presented in the film i mean she 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 performs the role perfectly well with whatever she's given but she's asked to wear the black hat when it doesn't make sense and... But I, but I like her. She's my favorite character. Ultimately, mm-hmm. like I, I, I think like yeah, go go get yours. Yeah, fuck around. You're good. I don't know. I like slutty girls, and that's not that's not a that's not a uh, judgment call. It's just like yeah, she likes to get laid. There are a couple of like cute guys coming after her. What I don't like is the sort of manipulative thing. And then yeah. like ultimately, the movie ends with her. Like so, so I mean, you know, spoiler alert for the for the <laughs> movie. So, like, there's the whole thing is like this battle between our two male leads, and it's kind of like a manipulative thing. And then, like, ultimately, uh, the the good guy falls in love with the girl, and he uh, is going to marry her. He's going to kind of take her away, but he's got to kind of kill the bad guy first to get the money. They kind of make that happen. And then uh, the bad guy kind of finds out about this because he's like like lurking over the corner, like Nancy Drew style. Yeah. And then he kind of manipulates the situation until no, I'm going to uh, escape wearing the woman's clothes, and she's going to escape wearing my clothes, and then like feeds that into like the network of uh, information going to the good guy. And the quote-unquote good guy, I should say. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the movie ends with, the you know, the U.S. Marshal, the Texas Ranger, whatever he's supposed to be, shows up and just, like, uh, shoots the person wearing female clothes in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the distance with, in cold blood. Uh, and therefore, he kills his uh, uh, fiance, And the Cisco kid gets away. Which is, like, real serial killer shit. Where the Cisco yeah. kid... It's just kind of like set this up. And he's supposed to be like, you know, oh, yeah, this is not the dark and stormy version. This is the like, you know, which uh, the film ultimately ends on like, well, she was bad because she was a slut. Like, that's kind of where the film ends. Yeah. Like, yeah, all this. And it is this kind of very O. Henry kind of thing where, you know, two people want something and they're both trying to kind of like give something to the person they love. But because of a misunderstanding, everything ends up bad, right? Yeah. Um, and I totally get that, except like, you know, <laughs> there is a sense in which, you know, Tony and Maria really did nothing wrong here, except no. like take take the best option, you know. And like, I have, I don't know, it's it's a very frustrating kind of film on that level. Yeah, yeah, and. Cisco Kid is like, 
in the end, he comes off like Thomas Ripley or something like that, where he's <laughs> manipulated everybody and yeah. doing all this dirty work for him. And then he just runs away. And, it's like, and uh, well, yeah. You know what, and then the movie ends. It's you know what makes you know what makes it worse. Uh, the, the direct sequel to this, where um, where both characters come back, the two main male leads come back. Apparently, uh, our cowboy there done don't give a shit. Apparently, they just sort of dropped the whole. Oh yeah, you killed my girlfriend in the last one. <laughs> it's just like he he lets the Cisco kid get away at the end of the of the follow up to this. Apparently, so. Right. But of course, but of course, they also like um, kind of you know part of the part of the thing is like. I met you 20 minutes ago and I want you to be the mother of my children. Right. You are the hottest woman in town and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, well, everyone was dying at 35 then Daniel, they had to get this stuff, you know, you know, like I, I, I get that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> they, they had to, they had to kick this in the gear. Let's, let's get married because we ain't going to be living long. <laughs> Tuberculosis is right around the corner. Come on. Yeah. Actually, I think one of the actresses in this died of tuberculosis, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I think actually it was, uh, it actually was Dorothy Burgess. I think she died of tuberculosis in the fifties, if I'm not right. mistaken. Yeah, maybe was, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna look it up. That's fine. Yeah, I, that sucks. It yeah, is. No, it I, is funny how many of these people like died uh, early. Yeah, kind of looking at the death dates and like almost nobody lives to like the eighties or whatever. You know. Right. Yeah. The only the only other two things is. Two things I, f- I found funny. There was a, there's a just like a throwaway line where two characters are talking, and someone says, "says here in the paper, John L. Sullivan going to quit drinking," and then the other guy goes, "I don't believe that." I'm just thinking fake news. That's yep. That's, yep. that's that conversation right there. And then uh, the the stagecoach driver uh, who who is you know held up yeah, by the Cisco kid, which is which is one of the most fun sequences in the film is the stagecoach robbery where mm-hmm. like uh, the Cisco kid he steals the gold from the bank, and then like uh, there's a pretty girl who you know kind of comes, you know. She's like, oh, you got like a private effect, and she's got like this like kind of effect or whatever. I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, yeah, he's like, no, I don't steal from individuals. And this is supposed to like kind of demonstrate his his goodness as a character, you know? So yeah, he's kind of well, he he does the Robin Hood kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of pretty scene. It doesn't really fit into the movie. In a... No, it, I, I guess it's just there to make the Cisco kid look better because yeah. he, he takes like a brooch from this woman. But he pays her gold in return uh, right, to right. to to compensate, right? And um, but yeah, anyway, the the stagecoach driver. I just like because there's like three or four scenes in the opening, like t- 10, 15 minutes or whatever, where he everyone he sees, he's like, "I'd have shot him myself if I hadn't been, you know, had to throw my gun down." He finally tells it to like the the head of the fucking fort or whatever that uh, he's complaining to, and the guy's like, "Yeah, get the fuck out of here!" Like, just right. <laughs> you're gonna do shit, buddy. Like, yeah, no, the, the, that that character is really fun. Where he he's kind of like, you know, oh, no, 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 I would have. I would have totally been the badass, except like I just didn't have my gun on me, and it's like, yeah, yeah, fuck you, fuck you. yeah, but yeah, this is your justification. It's fine, but you know, box offices for this was uh, one point three million, and I don't believe that's adjusted at all. So uh, yeah. I did not have a budget it's on a, it, but I mean, that's got to be good. Yeah, it's got to be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I imagine you know this being like one of the first talkies, it was kind of a sensation. On, yeah, on its own, and know, like uh, it is funny that like at this point. We have audio recorded out of a studio 
was mm-hmm. uh, the effect it was effectively like Avatar or whatever, you know, yep. like in terms of level of technology. Um, so yeah, and it is uh, you know it is it is worth it is seamless like this mm-hmm. doesn't this doesn't sound bad and admittedly the version that I watched was the uh, I rented the version on YouTube um, so same here there may be some you know remastering some some kind of stuff kind of going on there maybe if we kind of had an original print from 1928 we could kind of like recognize some difficulties um but the version i i watched uh sounded great there i had had no issues with it yeah the only flaws i saw in the entire movie really were there's some hard cuts that don't match up too well yeah but that's just kind of from the time that's just kind of what happened well that's, um, that's, i mean you know you'll see that i mean movies today kind of run into that issue you know? yeah uh only big trivia piece i have here that we haven't sort of gone through is raul walsh was cast as a cisco yes. kid as well being the director for this but during the return drive to los angeles from utah a jackrabbit jumped through the windshield of walsh's car with both the rabbit and the broken glass hitting walsh in the face so it was like a Fabio incident with that fucking duck on the fucking <laughs> amusement ride, right? Uh, th- this was be- this was before safety glass, uh, which right. came in the following year in cars. Damaged to Walsh's right eye, necessitated replacing him in the lead role, uh, rewriting the script, and reshooting some scenes with a different director while Walsh recuperated. Apparently, Walsh is still in the film in some like faraway shots yeah yeah i kind of i was kind of reading like apparently they you reuse some of that footage but it's like the faraway stuff where you can't really see anything so yeah yeah so uh yeah yeah uh, i mean i don't know if i if i gave my sort of final thought on this i think it's worth watching i think it's got some problems but it's it's pretty damn good all all the same i think it Uh, was worth the four dollar rental like i would definitely i would definitely recommend that to people i think it's worthwhile um, particularly if you're kind of following along this journey with us, as I would hope that some of our listeners are actually kind of like following along with this and kind of going, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I'd, I'd check that out. I think this is worth a watch. I think there's a lot of really great stuff in it. It's funnier than I think uh, Lee yeah. and I have given it credit for. There's a lot of really nice like comedy bits in this. That it's actually really a really good comedy. It, yeah. it actually shocked me because, again, like I thought action adventure is what IMDb said. And my this, cursory glance. Both this and the other one we're going to do are basically just romance movies. Like, yeah, that's, that's you know, which is it's fine. I, I'm fine with kind of doing some some romantic comedies, but this 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 really fits that bill. And honestly, like I could see it as a bit of a date movie, is to kind of like sit down. Except like then you get to the end of this, like yeah, uh, the horny girl uh, dies. For yeah, you you might. Like you want to, you might want to remake it and change it so she doesn't die, and maybe not have two of the leads in brown face. You might want to change that too. Sure, yeah, no. I mean, if you have a partner who is okay with 1920s racism, okay (laughs) with the woman being uh, punished for uh, wanting to have sex, um, then this could be kind of a date movie for you. I guess is kind of where I'm going. Like for a movie from 1928, you know, we're <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's cute and funny in the parts where it's cute and funny. That's that's where I land on it. Yeah. Right, right. All right, so we're gonna take a quick break, play a little bit of music, and we're gonna come back with the Virginian. Sweet tuxedo 
Oh, girl, you see, queen of swell society, fond of fun as fond can be when it's on the strict cutie. I'm not too young, I'm not too old, not too timid, not too bold, just the kind you'd like to hold, just the kind for sport, I'm told. Tarara boom die, tarara boom die, tarara boom die, tarara boom die, tarara boom die. I'm Queen of London, Queen of France, always out for big romance. Old men like to see me dance, if they're nice they have a chance. Of course, a gent that's on the spree wants me to sit upon his knee. I tell him, Dad, now don't be free, all I want is jollity. Ta-ra-ra, ta-ra-ra, Papa says at big expense, old mates say I have no sense, boys think that I'm just immense. Before my song I do conclude, I want it strictly understood, the fond of fun I'm never rude, though not too bad I'm not too good. Ta-ra-ra, The Virginian from 1929 uh, this is directed by Victor Fleming, who uh, is also known for quite a few things. Uh, Treasure Island from 1934, Captain's Courageous from 37, The Wizard of Oz, you might have heard of that, and Gone oh, with the Wind. The Wizard of what? No, I haven't. Wizard, no, 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 The no. Wizard of Oz. Gone with the what? No, sorry. Um, drawing a blank. Drawing yeah. A blank. yeah. Uh, written by Owen Wister, who uh, did the story, uh, Kirkless Shell. Grover Jones, Keen Thompson, Howard Easterbrook, Edward E. Paramore Jr., and Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Uh, this is starring Gary Cooper as the Virginian, Walter Houston as Trampas, Mary Bryan as Molly Starkwood, uh, Richard Arlen as Steve, Helen Ware as Mrs. Taylor, Chester Conklin as Uncle Huey, Eugene Paulette as Honey Wigan. Victor Potel is Nebraska. E.H. Culvert as Judge Henry. Nebraska. I uh, one day I just want to be like uh, uh, nicknamed Michigani. You know, <laughs> like uh, Michigan and Dan. Michigan and Dan walking into the. You, you can't say you can't say Michigani Dan without like also like spitting into a spittoon. Like that's oh. how you know that that goes. Yeah. I mean, that, that might be, you know, if, if the world collapses, we'll go back to, like, uh, you know, the, the local watering hole where it's just, you know, like a shitty shitty bar with, like, swinging doors. And, oh, look at there. Michigan and Dan coming on in this place again. <laughs> Never thought I'd see your liking here again, boy. Tenderfoot. Then you shoot the guy dead. 
That's that's exactly how that's going to go. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. No. Uh, so we have a synopsis here from John Oswalt. He says, uh, Molly Wood arrives in a small western town to be the new school marm. The Virginian, four men on a local ranch, and Steve, his best friends, who become rivals for her affection. Steve falls in with bad guys led by Trampus, and the Virginian catches him cattle wrestling. As foreman, he must give the order to hang his friend. Trampus gets away, but returns in time for the obligatory climatic shootout in the streets. And yeah, that is, that is the movie. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. No. That is that is high noon the prequel. That's what, that's what that is. <laughs> it's very high noon the prequel. <laughs> I mean, it is like one of those things to where, and I'm just going to recommend anyone listen to this. Just kind of pause right now and go listen to our high noon episode where um, you know, uh, and watch high noon because that's a film that frames this sort of like uh, what within the internal context of the film feels like very much a uh, lovers, lovers squabble um, mm-hmm. in the sense uh, within the framework of, but he's the bad guy and I have to like stand up to him and uh, like defend the town. Despite the fact that like, there's no indication that this person will do anything uh, if uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's so long as like the white guy who like, you know, stole his girlfriend away is not around, <laughs> you know, ultimately. Yeah. And although the uh, Katie Harado who plays Helen in that film, uh, uh, worth worth fighting for. Just gonna oh yeah. There. <laughs> and so and so Lee and I, when we covered that film, definitely kind of landed on the you know no this is this is a this is a lover squabble and this is something that like actually I'd kind of be on the side of the townspeople in this. Um, yeah, no, Gary Cooper's the asshole who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who, in this who, film, who... it's kind of it's kind of that story. It's kind of mm-hmm. telling that same narrative and in a, in a very similar way of the the last film kind of tells the uh the story of you know this is ultimately you know kind of a battle of of wills between you know kind of a good guy and a bad guy who are both kind of fighting for the affections of this one woman um but this one is even more overt i mean this is very much the prequel to to high noon so yeah. i would love to see a, a double feature of these at some point um be great that said i actually so um another thing uh, this may be in your kind of um you know trivia bits but um within certain circles the virginian the novel is considered the the first quote unquote western outside mm-hmm. of the kind of dime store things although this gets uh there are some arguments back and forth within academia is termed in terms of like what's really kind of the first quote unquote western and the novel was written in 1904 um the film is from 1929 and um so you know uh there's uh there's two previous adaptations of this yeah. from 14 and 23 yeah which you know i don't know it's funny like i you know they they go oh yeah these is you know this was the thing that was made and then you go look into it and go uh oh yeah it doesn't exist anymore or um there's a decaying print in the vaults of a movie studio that will never uh put the money into putting it out there in a way that you and I right. can watch it and like, like this fuck, fuck those companies. Yeah. Them. Also apparently, and, and here's something I was just sort of reading. Uh, so this was also remade in 46 and 2000 as a TV yep. movie. Apparently the 46 version, which was much more well-known and popular for quite a while. Cause apparently the prints of this version were so incredibly shitty until like the 1990s when it got restored. Yeah, I watched the version on YouTube, which was still pretty bad. 
Honestly. It was pretty bad. Yeah, 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 it was pretty bad. Um, I would love to see a cleaned up version of this. Um, I did like the film ultimately. Like, mm-hmm. I, I did. I did find this like a really entertaining kind of ninety minute watch. That said, you know, it is it is uh, interesting to see like kind of the high noon formula, but like with a more like yeah, this is kind of all about my dick. You know, <laughs> you know it's nice to it's nice to see that uh, you got uh, you know uh, Walter Houston. You got Gary Cooper baby faces at this like i would be hard pressed just kind of looking at this like without kind of knowing that's who they are and like recognizing them because same thing with you yeah exactly the same thing with wings yeah 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 gary cooper yeah and and walter houston even like walter houston way thinner way younger than than you know uh uh treasure of uh Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which so Sierra Madre, we'll yeah. This. I think we'll do that. Yeah. Oh yeah, we should do that. No, yeah, no, definitely. No, no, I can't. I can't believe we're almost two hundred episodes and we haven't done Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> right also, uh, in in old Arizona, if you want to know what the, the experience of watching that is, it's just imagine the stinking badges scene, but spread out uh, over ninety minutes. That's the. <laughs> I I like this quite a bit I, I i think it works better than the virginian uh-huh. uh because uh, in, in old arizona oh uh, yeah, or- oh, yeah, yeah yeah and then uh in old arizona because here even though it does take a dark turn it's not overt comedy for the first half of the film so yeah. it's like you know it's an easier kind of ease into that well it actually interrogates the issues because ultimately yeah. it does uh, have this kind of like there's a moment so so our our lead the virginian our, the virginian he like kind of becomes buddy buddy with this guy and they pull pranks together which like seem really assholeish like juvenile pranks of like <laughs> they know, switch babies switch babies around and so like there are babies that get like christening that weren't supposed to get christening and um yeah, yeah, no and uh yeah well, i mean no. i mean you know we're both atheists that that's kind of like who gives a shit i mean really. it doesn't matter to us but it definitely mattered to people then <laughs> yeah know? no that that's like you that's like I, you... i'm just kind of imagining like and then we circumcised your son like because we couldn't uh, yeah no like there's a yeah this is this is really fucked up kind of shit and they're like <laughs> like oh look it's like i just kind of imagine like the 80s like sex comedy like pranks of like you know we went on the panty raid we switched the babies you know like sort of sort of thing you know like a, a modern judd apatow comedy yeah. it, it would be oh we switched the babies around and now these babies are getting their foreskins cut off <laughs> <laughs> and and now this baby gets to go to heaven despite the fact that they're Jewish. That's the mm-hmm. you know that's the lesson. As if there are any Jewish people in this movie. You know? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we say silly things on this podcast. We once say silly things, and <laughs> I amused myself. I apologize. Um, you know so. Uh, but yeah, then it gets into, you know, one of the guys, one of the buddies uh, ends up kind of like uh, falling in with this crowd doing cattle rustling. And there's some action sequences and then he gets caught and then um, they end up hanging him in yeah. a pretty Which hardcore is, sequence. God damn, that's a, that's a, yeah, that might be one of my favorite sequences in film i've ever seen honestly. oh yeah no no I mean, it's it's an amazing sequence i mean if you just imagine like we got halfway through your road trip 
and suddenly, you know, it turned into hostile. <laughs> it suddenly turned into hostile. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of what that's kind of what it what it ends up being. And um, they don't tell the girl, our, our kind of lead woman, who mm-hmm. uh, is very good in this. Uh, sorry, and uh, I, I, again, I, I always try to like uh, Mary Bryan as Molly Stark. Would. Yeah, you know what? I didn't look her up. You know who I looked up. Out of the female cast in this, I was... know exactly. Who you're yeah, okay. the, female cast in this. the barmaid, yeah. the barmaid who Nina, Nina yeah. Quartero. We we definitely are going to have to uh, do some films with her. Not to say we are not going to do some films with uh, Mary Bryan, but uh, yeah, the barmaid was clearly the hot one. I'll, I'll just say, like, apparently she did mostly bit parts, but she is uh, she does have a starring role in the Monkey's Paw from 1934. Well, uh, uh, throw that into our 1934 bracket, and we'll yeah, uh, do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, uh, it is. It is sort of like it gets to this kind of dark place where mm-hmm. suddenly we're uh, kind of examining this, and they actually have a really kind of interesting for a movie at all, but certainly a movie from 1929 kind of conversation about like, um, you know. He hung his friend. He he like killed his friend because he broke the law, and that's like an awful thing. And like, no, he should really like uh, back in the east where she's from. Uh, we have cops, and we have uh, you know a system that does this for us. And also, it's like you know, and so yes, you've like built a system that means that you don't have to confront the brutality of the system under which right. we live. That will like hang the thieves for you, so that you don't have to do it yourself. And um, there is this kind of tension that's kind of going out. And it's interesting that, that, like, even in 1929, they're sort of looking back to, like, the 1870s or 80s. Uh, they, make a refer- like they make a reference to the Statue of Liberty, but in kind of this kind of general way. There was this kind of long period in which the Statue of Liberty was uh, being built and constructed. And so it could be mm-hmm. anywhere between, like... 1875 and 1886 ultimately um i I don't think there's a kind of specific uh time frame that that the film is supposed to be set and he's supposedly supposedly supposed to be kind of an ex an ex-confederate and so probably like you know 1870s it it feels it feels like death of the old west era because you know the town just the way it's presented feels mostly yeah, there's law here. There's, you know, there's ranchers and stuff like that. Like things seem much more organized than they would have been in like just right after the civil war or before the civil war kind of era. So. Well, it's interesting that like, I mean, we've talked, we talked a bit about high noon and we talked a bit about, you know, but this whole idea of, um, you know, the girl who is kind of caught between hero and villain. I mean, that's something we saw even in like revisionist Westerns. I mean, once upon a time in the West too, which is, you know, one of my personal all time favorite movies. And I think one of yours as well. Um, Does this trope to a T in the sense Mm -hmm. of like really um, observing the brutality behind it. It is interesting to kind of see it this early in, um, in cinema in both of these films, it was, it was kind Mm -hmm. of like really uncomfortable almost to kind of see the way that the woman is kind of used as like the, the sort of the object of, um, of these characters. And, and I think here in um, the Virginian, she gets a lot more uh, choice. Like, you know, one of the things that you kind of run into in an old, in an old Arizona is that um, she 
is really inconsistent because nobody really cared about her character. Mm-hmm. And ultimately they only cared about the dudes. And here she does kind of become the lead. She is the person kind of making decisions for a while. Um, yeah. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. And you could probably almost trace back the trope of the sort of school teacher taming the rough around the edges cowboy, maybe to this yeah. film. Then it might be where this might be where it started. And I mean, uh, the most iconic version of that is, well, no, it's not the most iconic version. I'd say, you know, High Noon is the aftermath of that, right? Yeah, it's yeah the, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's the, well, it is interesting that we did High Noon. Like, High Noon kind of gets to be kind of, certainly from a modern perspective, it gets to be kind of like the, the art sample. Mm-hmm. And yet High Noon is, like, responding clearly to uh, stuff that, that happened 30 years earlier. Um, yeah. Or at least 20 uh, years earlier. Uh, but just just going back to that hanging scene, uh, I gotta like just mention like I think some of the finest piece of like sort of cinematic storytelling I've seen is in mm-hmm. that, yeah. where so the the two friends they have this little thing where they do this sort of like a quail whistle to each other, I guess mm-hmm. like that's kind of their old time thing where they they whistle to each other and with bird calls and and then that's how they that's you how know, they signal to each other, right? Yeah, yeah, so. The, the hanging's going on and there happens to be a couple like quail or whatever around while the hanging's going on and uh, the Virginian hears it just before uh, Steve gets hanged. He does, I believe he does the call if, if I'm not mis- mistaken. Yeah, he does the call like, I think it's before the noose is around his neck. Yeah. Like sort of like as he's kind of walking up to the gallows. And, and um, then after the hanging and you don't see the hanging you see the before and the aftermath is all on the characters who witnessed it and so uh gary cooper is sort of you know he's going away he gets past the gun belt and gun of steve who who basically just bequeathed it to him and there's a note in it you know saying like i didn't say anything to you because if i did i'd start crying like a fucking baby yeah. You know, like the friendship's that deep. And then he hears the fucking birds again. And it's like he's hearing his dead friend saying goodbye. And it's like, holy shit, yeah. that's the complexity. It's, good filmmaking. it's, it's fucking and, great. And not to, it's a weird thing to say. We're two years into sound yeah. as a thing that's in movies, right? You know? And so to use like that very specific audio cue and to expect an audience to sort of follow along with that. Like that's, that's really sophisticated and it, and it works even in 2020, it works completely. I mean, I'll I'll just say it like outright that honestly, just that alone being sort of implemented to this kind of puts it on my best of list for this year. Like, yeah, Right there. I don't know like, that it's on my list, but I, I get I get where you. I mean, and I, I actually I like this movie overall enough that it's on my best of list anyway. Sure, but sure. Yeah. but I mean that was like holy shit! Like I did not expect to see that as much as I didn't expect to see uh, a comedy <laughs> in the first yeah. film. Yeah, I did not expect to see that level of complexity here, and I was like, holy shit! Somebody 
you need a fucking Oscar, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I, I mean, I, I don't. You know, despite the fact that I don't know that this film ends up on my best of list, I think that sequence is. Like, like I agree with you. It is. It is one of the great um, sequences and uh, that we've seen in a movie that we've done in this podcast series um, and in this podcast in general. I think it's one yeah. of the great film sequences, and I think that like it is one of those things that I that I kind of run into of. Um, in terms of talking about this stuff. And I feel, uh, I have complicated feels about this because like, I don't want to like kind of put myself as someone who's like an expert on this because clearly I'm not, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, I do feel like a lot of like people kind of talking about cinema and kind of talking about like, kind of like, uh, like how movies work kind of start about 1941, kind of like citizen Kane is sort of like, Oh, this is sort of the beginning of movies. Um, this this is when movies were real. Right, right, and that's not true at all. And I and I feel like maybe I don't know. Like I didn't go to film school, and maybe Cameron Sullivan can um, correct us on this. But yeah, you know, um, I feel like there's a lot of even today where it's like, yeah, yeah we kind of start in 1970, even you know. And I feel like part of what we learn, kind of going back to these things and kind of examining them, even in the, you know, kind of drunken podcast blase <laughs> kind of like you know sense that you and i are doing it and not in like in that kind of an academic sense is to kind of see like i don't know there's a there's a great uh context to all of this that has been lost and i feel like i don't know i get really i i kind of get angry about that 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 we don't have this kind of context in terms of our in terms of our kind of cultural conversation around this that we we seem really willing to just kind of pretend that uh you know movies just didn't exist before a certain time and we seem to just kind of like uh heap praise upon a particular thing because it does it well without sort of like having the kind of the, the precursor knowledge and um yeah no. that's what it, yeah that's what i like about doing these it, it it's kind of several times it sort of humbled me on like what I thought I knew about films, you know, because, you know, I just haven't seen before we started doing this. I hadn't seen a lot of stuff from like the first, you know, 50 years of the 1900s. Yeah, sure. And I mean, and, and and that's not like, we shouldn't take that as like a personal affront, right? We shouldn't take mm -hmm. that as like, you're a bad person because you haven't seen in old Arizona, right? Because no, no, no. Like, and and I don't mean this, between you and me, it's just like nobody's seen everything, but there is this sort of like panel of experts who get considered to be kind of the the people who get to kind of set the agenda in terms of what films get viewed as worthy of consideration in terms of our uh, examination of film history. Yeah, and um, they almost never really think seriously about the silent era unless they're specifically interested in the silent era. And I think even our cursory, like we've literally just kind of looked at like the top, you know, the ones that like, you know, mm-hmm. literally get considered like the greatest films of the silent era. That's kind of what our list has been so far. Even just looking at that, you kind of get like a, such a broader perspective on these things and, and kind of where the history is. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It, it 
you know, it does kind of make me just go like, nobody knows anything. Like, we're the experts. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> like movie critics. At the end of the day, it comes back down to personal preference and personal interpretation of film. There's definitely consensus on certain films, to, you know. But even then, there's always the minority that doesn't like those films that fall into the consensus, you know, uh, or the thoughts about certain films that are in consensus. There's always a minority voice on that. And in the end of the day, it comes down to your own personal thoughts and feelings about what you've watched. And that's what I liked about doing this is, you know, I don't have anybody telling me what I'm supposed to think about film. You know, fuck you. If, if you're trying to tell me what I'm supposed to think about this film, we're watching these films and, I at least hope that we're coming into this earnestly. I, at least I hope that comes off in the podcast. And we've been really enjoying just doing this and seeing all this great stuff in these films from this early era. And yeah, it feels like it's been ignored by a lot of people who are so-called film experts. And I mean, how many how many greatest film lists have you seen that have included Haxon as? Uh you know, on that list. Uh-huh. And I would, I would put that as like one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Quite mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, same here. Of- and I mean, and, and, and us doing that doesn't make it true. It's just, it, it makes it our personal experience with that right. film. Sure. And, and I mean, that's where the, I think the conversation should be. It shouldn't be from someone talking down to other people, but oh no, this is how film is. This is what real film technique is. And so it's like, no, it always has to be from, you know, personal perspective and have a conversation about it with other, someone else with a personal perspective of the film right. and, and not, you know, as, as much as there's a lot of consensus of like certain films, you can't make that set in stone. Like I mean, fucking... there, there is a no gods, no masters element to, to this where you know it's mm. not it, it, you know like you and i are not the experts but like, no. most people say, like nobody is the experts like there are people who have seen like tens of thousands of movies and there are people who have done like and i really respect people who have done um you know like uh, graduate work who have done yeah you know, real studies of film uh, to the degree that uh they they have like insightful things to say and like, Oh, go check this out and go do that thing. Um, my, I think, I think what we're kind of landing on and, uh, I'm sorry to not, we're not really talking about the movie anymore we're just kind of <laughs> talking in general, but I, I think what we're trying to land on is like, there's a, um, there's an element of aristocracy where, uh, certain films get considered, worth viewing like there's a, there's a list of movies where you look at this list of movies and when you've seen this list of like 200 films and you've read uh this list of like 25 books suddenly you are an expert on movies and it's who bullshit. gets left in and left out of that conversation uh is a complicated thing and i think what we're running into is like uh you know we're viewing all this stuff and we're finding that there are things left out of that narrative precisely because like, there's no one really looking at silent film beyond like, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin and um, who gets included in that sort of mainstream narrative. Yeah. You know, guidelines are fine. Like here, here's, here's, here's a person who's 
uh, gone to film school and has, you know, researched and knows all the background on all these films. And here's their personal 20 best films ever made. Mm-hmm. And you read that list. That's great, but it's not set in stone. It It is, it is a introduction for some people because there's probably stuff that they've never heard of on there, but you know, it's just a starting point. It's just a, it's just a, a, a vector into, uh, you know, exploration of film. And, uh, like, I feel like, you know, like I'm saying this, this hanging scene in this film, I, I cannot think of any fucking list of films ever where I've seen anyone mention this shit. Like I've, I've never seen anyone meant like greatest film scenes ever. I've never seen, yeah. you know, the hanging it is, scene. Like, like it's, I mean, it kind of brought me to tears watching that. Scene. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's, it's profoundly sad and poetic and, and amazing. And I mean, both of these films, I think is, I think it's worth noting that both of these films are incredibly dark. Mm-hmm. In terms of like, despite the fact that uh, In Old Arizona is is kind of a comedy, and uh, and this one is is less so, but uh, you know both of these films have like this really dark heart, and uh, both of these films are you know kind of late twenties, pre Great Depression. Oh my God, we're gonna kind of come back to the to this era of film and something mm-hmm. to explore the Great Depression. That's gonna be <laughs> great for everyone, right? Um, you know. Yeah. But it is worth noting that, like, uh, these films do not shy away from the darkness. There is a a moment in this film in uh, The Virginian where our school marm, who I, I love her. I love mm-hmm. her. She's, she's great. She is great. Yeah, she's great. Uh, runs across a group of children, and uh, they're hanging one of their uh, classmates in, in kind of a, you know, pretend way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, oh, no, no, we're just play acting um, the, the hanging that we saw. You know, yeah, it turned out, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Richard Arlen. He died. Yeah, the, hung, the hung Steve. Yeah, the hung Steve. And we're just uh, we're just play acting that, which is a very um, thing that kids do. And also a very thing that, like, uh, uh, people who work with children uh, kind of run across and have to deal with. Like mm-hmm. it's a very real moment. Um, uh, even in 2020, that felt that felt very real to me. <laughs> that said, you know, it is like, well, and these are children who are miming, hanging one of their schoolmates because this is just kind of a reality of the world they yep. live in. And it is a kind of reflection of the violence that existed in American society and in particular society in this uh, time and place uh, at, at that era of like, yeah, there's, there's just a lynching. We're just going to do a lynching. That That's just a thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Although not technically a lynching because, uh, you know, our lead is a member uh, you know, of the government. So it's, uh, yeah, it's complicated. He's, he's, he's not a minority. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, lynching is one of those things. Like, hopefully, we we can. I mean, we can talk about lynching another time. But like, uh, it's late, and I'm tired and drunk, and I feel like we've, I feel like we both have and have not talked about this movie enough. Uh, it's it's something people need to watch. It's it's yeah. pretty great. It's very um, good. And uh, I would love to see one of the things that I would like to see from this 
um, if uh, the studio is listening to our podcast, which gets a uh, hundred <laughs> listeners, is uh, put out a big restored version of this because I'm mm-hmm. it. Um, and uh, all of our listeners would, I'm sure. Yeah, you, you would get you would get guaranteed 102 sales of, of this yeah. of this film if, if you put it on DVD <laughs> remastered. Um, like one one percent one percent of people on a podcast will uh, listeners to a podcast <laughs> will actually spend money on a thing, so you will get one twenty dollar sale, um, but also two because both Lee and I would buy it. Um, yeah, so three definitely. You will get three sales. You will make sixty dollars if you. Uh, you know. <laughs> Which probably wouldn't nearly cover the cost of like remastering it. Yeah. <laughs> if you pay someone for uh 80 hours of uh, you know yeah i don't know what i don't know how many hours it takes to you know remaster but i'd love to get a good version of this and uh post-capitalism someone will do this uh because uh, this movie deserves uh, better work i'd do it i'd do it yeah yeah uh thinking just just a couple things here uh, just sort of struck me um there's a scene where they're rustling the cattle and they, they put them yeah. in the river i'm kind of thinking some of them didn't make it <laughs> like, oh yeah, that seemed like a bunch of dead beef. Yeah, <laughs> this, uh, this is how we feed the crew. We're just gonna like drown some cows and then like uh, you know slaughter and cook them. And uh, I, I like the uh, I like the comedy drunk side character who's like always like let's get a drink. And uh, they're at the uh, the social there where you know everyone's hanging out, and he's like. And he, he's always talking about how America's changing and how it's it's so bad that he's going to have to leave soon. And he's like, pretty soon they'll be putting soda pop in the liquor. <laughs> and it's like, wow, he predicted Bud Light Lime. Like he, yeah. you know, prophetic right there. You know, great stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just like uh, scotch and soda. That's a sign of the collapse of Western civilization. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a little bit of trivia here. Um, I mean, any th- any any time that people are pouring whiskey in a western, like I understand that uh, you know uh, on screen this is like real whiskey, but in reality, you just imagine this is like uh, fermented cactus. That's that's what was really being poured. Yeah, this. because yeah. whiskey was not whiskey back then. No, it was no, anything no, you no, could no. like no, this distill. Was, this was. This was this was effectively like you would go blind drinking this. Like this is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a reason people died at 35. Yeah. And I mean, the, the stuff you would be buying at taverns, like it would be so watered down because if, if it wasn't, you would kill people like legit kill people <laughs> with a lot of that stuff. Well, and there's a reason that like beer just didn't exist. I mean, you and I both come out of the kind of the beer geek world, right. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure most of our fans understand that, but there's a reason in the Western states that um, beer didn't exist, and that's because it didn't travel well, and um, you know it was uh, more cost efficient to just distill. And so you just take whatever yeah. sugar source you have, which is um, you know cactus or just grain alcohol, pure sugar, or you know potatoes or whatever, and you would just distill it, and then you'd serve it. And so like the idea that like this is um, whiskey. That we have both like, uh, <laughs> you know, distilled properly and then like aged properly in a barrel. Like, uh, you know, that's not the reality of what uh, we're seeing in taverns in uh, 1880 in Arizona. The, there were no, 
there were no whiskey laws back then. It was like you have to age it for three years and shit. It's like no, they weren't doing that. Like this is no. like whiskey. This is like at best they had some grain that they dis- that they distilled and then they turned it into white whiskey. So this is like white lightning at best, and like yeah. uh, most likely uh, methanol infused cactus water. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, a little bit of trivia here. There was also a 1962 spinoff series for television from this. Apparently, this was actually issued in a silent version as well. So, Interesting. Yeah. So apparently, there was like a full version with like uh, title cards, which is something I need to see. Like I, <laughs> I need which, to find this. Ironically, the the other one, um, mm-hmm. in older Zona, would work much better as a silent film than this one. Yeah, really you'd have to like, cut out most of the jokes. Yeah, really. Yeah, you know, like now, like, and older Arizona does feel like it's a silent film in which, like, oh, and then we have like a little five minute segment where we're just gonna tell jokes. Like, which <laughs> it works better if you see it that way, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whereas uh, this feels like a sound film. Like, a, it'd be hard for me to imagine a silent version like working as well as the sound version does. Yeah. Uh, so this was, of course, Gary Cooper's first all-talking film, uh, and I, and I love that. Like I was looking at the posters for this, like the vintage posters. Yeah, it's like all all-talking film. Like they they put it right on the posters, all-talking film. You know, like <laughs> this this is great. He felt that sound would ruin him, believing his voice was not adequate to the task. And this film turned him from a promising young leading man to a star, though. Uh, although he was not considered a superstar until Mr. Deeds Goes to Town in 1936, apparently. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is one of over 700 Paramount Productions filmed between 1929 and 1949. Well, they did 700 between there. Uh, which were sold to MCA Universal in 1958 for television distribution and have been owned and controlled by MCA ever since. And the last little bit here, and this is kind of notable, just because this guy is a major Western actor, iconic Western actor, I'd say. Uh, Randolph Scott has a bit role in here uncredited with no lines, as just like a cowhand or whatever. Sure. In some spot. But uh, Randolph Scott is like an all-time I, th- I think. I think as we get... Through the 20s and 30s, we'll run into that a lot. Ooh. And I yeah. say that, and I say that because, like, uh, it's just objectively true that like, a, whole lot of, <laughs> yeah. a whole lot of people who ended up being like huge stars are like, you know, I was an uncredited like background actor in like such and such thing from 1932 that probably doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do so... think about like Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Long Goodbye, where he has like you know <laughs> two lines. He's in like one scene, and then like he becomes like the biggest movie star of all time for mm-hmm. ten years. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, we're we're getting into a time machine. We got a little time machine here. We're gonna we're gonna jump ahead. Yeah, we have a TARDIS or a DeLorean or a phone booth. Uh, regardless of how you feel about uh, let's, uh, whatever let's do your TARDIS. Time, whatever your time machine metaphor is, we're let's we're let's, going let's... to pretend that the years between 1929 and 1985 don't exist and just jump forward. Yeah, we're we're let, let's do TARDIS because I want like some attractive Doctor Who seconds, uh, and of course the TARDIS has a swimming pool in it. 
Yeah, well, if you believe the Moffat years are real, which I do not, but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm game for the swimming pool thing. I don't care about the rest of the Moffat shit because that's all bullshit. But yeah. uh, except except Karen Gillan, uh, she's fine to uh, continue to be a you know. Mm-hmm. Who, who's your Who's your favorite uh, Doctor Who companion? Ace. Uh, Ace. In terms of attractiveness, in terms of like uh, sexiness. Because we're just going to be like massaging. I mean, you might here. you might think I'd gravitate towards like the later redheads, but you know what? I might still say Ace. Ace is great. Ace is Ace is on, Ace is definitely on my list. Like, I, I, I mean, I I feel like isn't it like uh, Zoe? Isn't she like a little too young? Maybe Zoe's like nineteen. Like the okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, well then, I don't feel too bad about that then. <laughs> yeah, there's no one uh, underage. Uh, okay, good, good. Yeah. I, I was actually worried about that for a second. I think the so, character is supposed to be younger, but like, uh, uh, the uh, but timey wimey stuff, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like a it's a toss up between Zoe and Ace and. Hey, they could both get in the swimming pool, as far as I'm concerned. I don't. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, the more the merrier, ultimately. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's fine. But yeah, we're going to 1985, and it's episode 200, and like we've been kind of doing for this uh, on monumental episodes, we're going back to our namesake. We're going back to George Romero. We're going back mm-hmm. to the Dead series, and we're going to be looking at Day of the Dead. And actually, that's probably going to be the last. Romero dead film we're going to do in this podcast. Maybe for 300 we'll do uh, a diary. Diary? Oh, 400. Just jump, jump. You, you want to jump just... to diary and to skip Land of the Dead? Is Land before... Let's, land is before diary, isn't it? Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, let's skip the next 50 and like decide at 300 if we want to kind of continue to Romero. That works. That yeah. works. If we're, well, we're still at here least, at 300. That's at least two years away. So Yeah. Like so, yeah. But yeah, we're going to be doing Day of the Dead, and uh, hopefully we'll have Paul back. Potentially we'll have some guests as well. I was talking with uh, my friend Ricky Morgan and Johnny Krug yeah. from uh, Short Butts Cinema, and uh, I just recently did an episode with them, and they're like, we both love that film. Maybe we could arrange to get on it. So uh we're going to try to make that work. So maybe, possibly, it won't be next week that we do this. If if we can, like, get the schedules copacetic, uh, maybe it'll take two weeks. Who knows? But uh, I'm going to try to make that happen. So it um, should be a big episode. should be a lot of fun. And then we're going to, like, you know, sort of dilly-dally in the 80s for a little while, for yeah, like a month I, or something. I, I think the goal is to sort of like take a little bit of a break from the black and white silent um, mm-hmm. early stuff and uh, kind of hit some stuff that people might have seen already in the <laughs> 80s and 90s. And um, my plan is uh, to kind of let uh, uh, Lee kind of pick some of that stuff and uh, cool. you know, because we're, we're a little bit light in terms of our uh, conversation about movies in the eighties and nineties, and so um, you know, uh, I've put some stuff on the list. Uh, there are a couple of films that I'm going to kind of say, like, yeah, let's do this. Uh, but mm-hmm. we're just going to do like four weeks of like, yeah, let's uh, bounce around there, and then kind of come back to the late twenties, early thirties um, after that. Um, so the the whole idea is you don't go backwards unless you. Uh, Go or going backwards. forward, yeah, like, yeah. So yeah, so uh, yeah, so 
we'll pick back up on the on the the films of this era in in another you know four or five episodes. But uh, you know, we got we get two hundred. We got to do we got to do Romero. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, that's what we do. Ultimately, I would rather be doing like the crazies um, <laughs> to be doing Day of the Dead. Oh my god, the crazies is so. Uh, like Day of the Day of the Dead is so not my favorite Romero movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see what you think once you rewatch. I haven't, I haven't, I I haven't rewatched it in a number of years, so we'll we'll rewatch it. I'm looking forward to doing the episode, but uh, you know, like I I love Romero. Day of the Dead is not where I go. (laughs) I'm looking for good Romero. And I'd say if you're if you're going for a film that's like more like of the time right now, David Cronenberg's Rabid is actually much more on point right now for what's going on because that's about a it, it it it's ostensibly a vampire movie like it's it's Marilyn Chambers the porn star who actually you know did some mainstream acting for a while. Yep. Um, and she's actually really good. She gets into a like a motorcycle accident and this private non-socialized clinic, you know, like this private clinic does some skin grafts on her that are uh, you know, new futuristic skin grafts that basically turn her into a, like a vampire like creature that spreads a virus. So she she spreads like a pandemic in Montreal uh, in here in Canada and lo and behold Socialized medicine saves the day. <laughs> well, as it, as it, as it, it's also it does in real life. So yeah, and and shuts down the pandemic. It's actually much more apt right now for uh, what's going on right right well, now in I the, feel, in the I world. Feel, I feel like we need to uh, we need to make this happen. Hey, maybe maybe the time machine will get into a hiccup and we'll hit rabbit before we <laughs> before we do the rest of the eighties. I think that's probably worth doing. Uh, you know, like we're you know, I've been kind of like trying to like not talk about uh, the pandemic while we're in the midst of it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just to make this podcast a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, fun. Okay, well, and, let's take let's table that for like the future then. Like after this yeah, is breezed after over. After this is over, yeah. Like yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in 2022, we'll uh, cover that <laughs> because, um, yeah, this is this is the darkest timeline, and we're all going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. I do a podcast called I Don't Speak German. I can't imagine anyone who's listening to this who hasn't heard this like a hundred times or more. Um, but I do a podcast called I Don't Speak German, which is about Nazis and about uh, Nazi ideology and how terrible they are. Because when I'm not talking about um, goofy sex comedies and talking about um, 1929 uh, titties, I am... Uh, tracking uh the worst people in the english-speaking world and um i do a podcast about that and uh, i think it's really important and uh you should listen um if you feel you know we, we tell a lot of jokes as well it's fun mm-hmm. it's fun it's a, it's a fun show and um it's about genocidal racists so this is how i sell uh the thing that i have spent four years of my life doing is like yeah it's cute it's fun it's fine you will you will not want to slit your wrist after most of the time <laughs> and it's also about like the worst people in the world uh congratulations so it, yeah. it, it's it's a little bit of mel brooks making fun of nazis but at the same time it's much more serious and information based 
right? There you go. I will teach you what you need to know to confront them in your real life. That's kind of the goal. And uh, yeah. most of the time, I think we do a pretty good job of it. So, yeah. I would agree. Yes. And uh, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links. And, yeah, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, thanks for sticking with us with, you know, every once in a while. We've sort of been taking breaks here in the last little while just because uh, essential service job bullshit where it's just like yeah, I don't I have mean, the energy. Lee works, Lee works for a grocery store, and I work in the pharma industry. And um, Lee is clearly more important than I am. Uh, I'm a hero, in, apparently. In yeah, I'm, I'm a pandemic hero. I, I actually uh, unironically agree. Like you're doing uh, amazing work. Of- but I'm being, uh, because again, I'm in socialist utopia, Nova Scotia. I'm being paid very well for being a pandemic hero right now. So, right. yeah. Sure, sure. You know. So, so you know, um, don't, yeah. don't feel too great about me, guys. It, it turns out that uh, Lee and I are both essential workers, despite the fact that, uh, you know, we don't get paid very well. But, <laughs> but we'll take the little scrapings that the uh, yeah. <laughs> that the upper class throws. It out. turns out that all of our bosses get to work from home and yeah. avoid and avoid uh, any um, uh, personal strife uh, aside from uh, you know they all get to work from home, home and yeah. vote Republican. That's what yeah, they get to do. That's yeah. exactly what they get to yeah. do. And, um, <laughs> we get to vote for Bernie. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, which Hopefully. which is what you should do, but you know, yeah. Yeah. vote Bernie, or you know, Bernie is the center right candidate. Vote further left than Bernie. No, it's fine. <laughs> this episode is over. Nobody's listening. To this it's episode. fucking ridiculous. Yeah, uh, thank you all guys for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Cheers. Bury me not on the lone prairie These words came low and mournfully From the pallid lips of a youth who lay On his dying close of day Oh, bury me not on the lone prairie where the coyotes howl and the wind blows free in a narrow By three, oh, bury me not on the lone prairie. It matters not, so I've been told. The body lies 
when the heart grows cold Yet grant, oh grant This wish to me Oh bury me not On the lone prairie You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.